Good morning again, and welcome to Prairie View Christian Church. We appreciate you being here with us today. Now, as we've moved forward in the book of Romans, our summer in Rome, we have finally moved from the bad news of our sin and back into the good news of the gospel. Now, don't get me wrong. It is vital that we face the sheer ugliness of our sin in order to more fully appreciate the beauty of God's grace. But thankfully, Paul doesn't spend the entire book of Romans dwelling on mankind's sinfulness the way he did in part of chapter 1, all of chapter 2, and part of chapter 3. We've moved from talking about the wrath of God back to the righteousness of God, and we are thankful for that. Now, last week, we discussed four different words that Paul used in Romans 3, 21 through 26, to describe what happens to those who believe in Jesus. Word number one was that believers in Jesus are justified. Justified. To be justified means that we are declared righteous in God's sight. Jesus' perfect righteousness is graciously credited to our account. Word number two is that we were justified by God's grace. We deserve no credit for this newfound good standing with God. Every bit of it is a gift from beginning to end. We also read that we have been redeemed. We are free, purchased from the enslavement and prison of sin and death. And we are redeemed by Jesus' propitiation. Word number four. Propitiation is Christ's broken body and shed blood on the cross. The sacrifice that takes away the wrath we deserve once and for all. And we close by saying that these are not just high-minded theological terms to be debated by scholars and pastors. They're not just good answers to show off at your next small group or Bible study. These four words can help us understand the glorious truth of what God has done for us and who we are now in his Son Jesus Christ. But how do sinners enter into this new reality? How do these words become true of us? Justified by grace, redeemed by the propitiation of Christ. How do we come into that new status? Well, it's by faith in Jesus Christ, not by our works. And speaking of faith, that's what Paul talks about today in Romans 4. And he uses the Old Testament story of Abraham to make his point. Paul argues that Abraham had all the works. Works on works on works. But not even Abraham's works justified him. Even Abraham was justified by faith. So open up to Romans chapter 4 verse 1. Feel free to use the Bibles we have here if you didn't bring one. And take a Bible home if you don't own one. But before we read, let's pray together as a church. Father, again, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time that we have together. Thank you for the book of Romans that we are learning from, uh, that you are using to shape us and grow us and form us into the people that you call us to be, to form us into the people that you have declared us to be. And Father, we are just grateful for this time to read your word together. We're grateful for Sunday morning. Thank you for the opportunity to worship with brothers and sisters in Christ. I pray that we would not take these times for granted. 
Uh, and Father, thank you for the kids in the service. Thank you that they have the opportunity to learn from us and that we can learn from them as well. Uh, Father, I pray that you would watch over them and watch over the kids in the hallway that are still in their classrooms, that they would have a good, productive time of learning and worship and fellowship. Watch over them. Thank you for their teachers and their volunteers. And Father, again, simply we ask that you be with us as we read your word. Use it to impress upon our hearts what is true, what is good, what is glorious, what is worth thinking about and setting our minds upon. Again, we thank you for the broken body and shed blood of Christ. We ask this all in his name. Amen. Well, before we read in Romans 4, let's get a quick refresher about the guy that Paul will spend the next 25 verses talking about, and that is Abraham. Now, we know nothing of Abraham until we get to Genesis chapter 12, and when we find him, he appears to be a relatively normal, relatively unremarkable 75-year-old man. There is nothing that really sets him apart from anyone around him. Nothing happened earlier in his life that the author of Genesis sees the need to mention. He's just an old guy. And Abraham's wife, Sarah, is no spring chicken herself. She's 65. Sorry if you're 65. I don't mean to offend you. But sadly, Sarah has been barren her whole life. She and Abraham have never had any kids. And by any normal assessment... That ship sailed a long time ago. But then one day, God calls Abraham out of the blue to pack up everything he owns and go where God tells him to go. God promises that Abraham and Sarah will give birth to a great nation that will bless the whole world. He promises that their offspring will be like the sand of the seashore and the stars of the sky, and that one day they'll have land to call home. And as a sign of this covenant, these promises, God commands that Abraham and all his male descendants be circumcised. We'll talk about that in a minute in Romans 4. But how does Abraham respond to all these big promises, this big covenant? Well, we read in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, And Abraham believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Abraham believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Now, Abraham wasn't always perfect. He had momentary lapses, doubts, and sins. You can read about that in the book of Genesis. But at the end of the day, Abraham would be remembered as a man of astounding faith. He would even be called a friend of God. So Abraham was a hero, perhaps the greatest hero In all of Israel's history, a man of faith with a unique relationship with God, the father of the Jewish people, an important guy. And that's why Paul uses him as a powerful illustration of the point that he made way back in chapter one. Paul said in Romans 117 that the righteous shall live by faith. That's true of you and me. That's true of followers of Christ, believers in Jesus. And it's true of Abraham as well. So let's read Romans chapter 4, starting in verse 1. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. 
For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. This is a quote from Psalm 32. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. So by all standards of Paul's day and age, if there was anyone who had reason to boast in their works, it was Abraham. If anyone could ever dare suggest that their works of obedience, worship, and trust could enable them to stand before God, it was Abraham. But Paul argues that Abraham was not justified. He was not declared righteous in God's sight by his works. Abraham was justified by faith. That's why Paul quoted that verse from Genesis that we read just a few minutes ago. Chapter 15, verse 6. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. An early Christian preacher by the name of John Chrysostom put it this way. For a person who had no works, to be justified by faith was nothing unlikely. But for a person richly adorned with good deeds, not to be made just from these, but from faith, this is the thing to cause wonder and to set the power of faith in a strong light. So what John Chrysostom is saying It's that, you know, it's not that surprising if someone with no works, no good deeds, were to talk about being justified by faith. But Abraham had all the works. He had tons of good deeds that he could fall back on. But not even Abraham was justified by works. He was justified by faith. Now, we mentioned last week that we sometimes unintentionally finding ourselves viewing faith as the one work... By which we achieve good standing with God. We talk about faith like it's the one ingredient that we contribute to the salvation gumbo while God takes care of everything else. God does 95% of the work. This is the one contribution that we have to offer our faith. But we should remember that faith is not a work that we can boast in. Even faith is a result of God's grace. That's why not even Abraham, the man of legendary faith, not even Abraham has any room to boast before God. And Paul warns us that if we believe that our works earn our good standing with God, then we make justification not into a gift of God's grace, but a wage that God owes us. Even our faith is not a work that earns us anything from God. Everything we have from God stems from his grace. And then Paul says, well, look at it this way. God does not just justify the faithful. He justifies the ungodly. He justifies those people who have nothing to offer. Sinners 
who need to be forgiven, not faithful people to be rewarded. God justifies the kinds of people who would never believe, never worship, never obey on their own. And if you believe everything that Paul said in Romans chapters 2 and 3, that is very good news. Because we are all sinners. We are all ungodly, desperately in need of justification. But Paul continues, Romans chapter 4, verse 9. Is this blessing, then, only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How, then, was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith, while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well, and to make him the father of the circumcised, who were not merely circumcised, but also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God on whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, Abraham believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Now, part of what makes the doctrine of justification by faith so good is that right standing with God is available to anyone who believes. Anyone who believes. In Paul's day, and you can also see it in Jesus' ministry in the Gospels, many Jews believed that they were the sole recipients of God's grace. Why is that? Well, because they were children of Abraham. Of course, the man of faith. Now, if you weren't a child of Abraham by birth, you could become a recipient of God's grace if you wanted to. But you had to convert to Judaism entirely. That included the Old Testament law. That included circumcision. That included dietary restrictions. The whole nine yards. Gentiles could be saved, theoretically, but only if they became Jews. 
But Paul argues that Abraham was justified not by the work of circumcision. He was justified by faith decades before God said anything about circumcision. It was an important sign of Abraham's relationship with God. But Paul says it was not the source of Abraham's relationship with God. In Galatians 3, Paul adds that Abraham was justified 430 years before the law came into existence. So that can't be the source of Abraham's good standing with God either. So if he wasn't justified by circumcision, and he wasn't justified by the law, then how was he justified? By faith. And the same is true of you and me. And you might hear all this stuff about the law and circumcision, and again, think, you know, this just doesn't seem relevant to me. We don't care about that stuff. These things are no longer issues in the Christian church, or even in the religious world. But Paul's argument that Abraham was justified by faith is a big deal for the Gentiles back then. And it's a big deal for people like you and me today. It means that non-Jewish people, people not born into Abraham's family line, which is most people in this room right now, we can be in right standing with God through faith in Jesus. As Paul says again in Galatians 3, Those of faith are children of Abraham, members of God's family. Jesus hung on the cross, becoming a curse for sinners, in order that people like us, Gentiles, might receive the blessing of Abraham. He says in Christ Jesus, Jews and Greeks are one. And that together, all who believe in Abraham's offspring are heirs according to promise. All who believe in Christ. And as for those who didn't believe Paul's message, those in Rome who couldn't fathom that God could possibly do something like this, those who thought that it all sounded too good to be true, that I can be justified by faith alone, for those people, Paul gives them a reminder. I mean, we're talking about the God who gave a 90-year-old woman and a 100-year-old man a child. We're talking about the God who can raise the dead. We're talking about the God who spoke the universe into existence out of nothing. And if you believe that God can do those things, then why can't he justify the ungodly by faith in Christ alone? Why can't he redeem you? Why can't he save you by his grace? Why can't he offer Christ as the propitiation for the sins of the world? He can, he has, and he still is. And that is the good news. That is the gospel that Paul can't stop talking about. Now, before we finish Romans 4, now might be a good time to ask. If Paul is all about justification by faith and not works, faith, 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 then what exactly is the role of works? Do they play a role at all? Where do they fit in? Well, Paul will offer some answers to that question in the weeks ahead. But it's worth noting that Paul's not the only New Testament author to use the example of Abraham to talk about this intersection between faith and works. We see the same thing in the book of James. 
So let's look at that passage and figure out how do these two sets of scripture relate. James chapter 2, starting in verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled. In other words, good luck, wish you the best. Without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one? You do well. But even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? And here it is. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way also, Was not Rahab, the prostitute, justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? You can read about her in the book of Joshua. She was a Gentile, interestingly. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. So at first glance, you might think that James is directly contradicting Paul. Both authors are talking about faith and works. They both use Abraham to make their respective points. But in verses 21 and 24 of James chapter 2, James seems to conclude, come to the complete opposite conclusion as Paul. He seems to conclude that we are justified by works. So if Paul and James can't agree, if they're contradicting each other, whose side should you take? And what would it say about the integrity of Scripture if two New Testament authors, both inspired by the Holy Spirit, are directly opposed to each other? What do you do with that? Well, the good news is that you don't have to take a side, because Paul and James do not contradict each other. They're two different authors, with two different audiences, in two different situations. In Paul's case, he's addressing people who think their works can earn them good standing with God. So he insists that we are justified by faith, not by works. And as for James, he's speaking to people who would already claim to be justified by faith in the sense that they believe all the right stuff. But now they think that their actions, their works, don't matter at all. So we've got two groups of people making two different errors to two opposite extremes. One group thinks that works are the only way to earn good standing with God, which simply isn't true, according to Paul. The other group thinks that works don't matter as long as you hold all the right doctrinal stances. And James says that's not true either. 
So at the end of the day, Paul and James would agree that we are initially justified by faith. But they would argue that that kind of grace-initiated, spirit-driven faith cannot help but produce good works in its wake. Now, there are endless illustrations of this point, some better than others, and this one might be mediocre at best, but we're going to give it a shot. So imagine that you and a friend are working on some electrical wiring at your house. So you tell your friend to switch the breaker off. That way they don't get shocked when you touch the wire. So the friend goes down to the basement, flips off the breaker, and yells up the stairs that you are safe to touch the wire. And yet, you refuse. Now when your friend comes upstairs, you insist that you believe him. He switched off the breaker. You have complete confidence in him. You trust him. But you're still not touching that wire. You still refuse to do it. Now, eventually, your friend could not be blamed for concluding that you don't really believe them. That you don't really have faith in them. Or else you would touch that wire. The point is that true faith The kind that Abraham had, for example, is reflected in actions. In your case, it's touching that wire. In Abraham's case, it was packing up his family and going where God told him to go. We are justified by faith, not by good works. But justifying faith gives birth to good works. Gives birth to right actions. Let's finish out the passage in Romans 4, starting in verse 23. Paul says there, But the words it was counted to him, talking about Abraham again, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses, And raised for our justification. So if you think back to last week, we said that when we are justified, Christ's perfect righteousness is credited to our account. That's the reason that God can declare us righteous, even though truly, in and of ourselves, we're still just as sinful as ever. But here Paul says that the righteousness of Christ is credited to our account When we believe that God's words about him are true. The same way Abraham believed God's words about making him into a great nation. Having a land to call home. And having descendants as numerous as the sand on the seashore and the stars in the sky. We believe what's been revealed to us in the gospel. We believe that Jesus really is God's son. We believe that Jesus really is the only sufficient, spotless sacrifice for our sin. We believe that Jesus' body was broken and his blood was shed to take the wrath that we deserve. And we believe that God really did raise him from the dead. We believe God's words about Christ. And it is counted to us as righteousness. The same way it was counted to Abraham. So many years ago. Now, of course, when the rubber hits the road, our challenge is to remember all this stuff we claim to believe. To remember that we are justified by faith and not by works. 
We are not saved by doing all the right things, saying all the right things, being born into the right family, or jumping through all the right hoops, even when the hoops are actually really hard to jump through. Whether your resume is spotless and full of good works, or your closet is full of skeletons and bad works, you are justified by faith in Christ alone. And none of us has any room for boasting. It's also that challenge to remember that Christ's righteousness has been credited to your account and my account. You know, at times our own consciences, the world around us, and even Satan himself will tempt us to question whether or not someone like you or someone like me could possibly be in good standing with God. After all the things you've said, all the things I've done, who do we think we are to claim that we are good in good standing with God? Well, we remember at those times that Christ's righteousness has been credited to our account. And we cling to his righteousness. You know, it's true that we are great sinners. But it's also true that we have a great Savior. And of course, we remember what we've talked about so much in this sermon, that the righteous will live by faith. And as believers in Jesus, that's who you are. So go out and live with the same faith and trust in God that Abraham had. Go out and remember that you are free from the unbearable burden of trying to climb up the ladder to God's presence by your own works your own charity, your own honesty, your own morality. You are free to live by faith, confident that the Holy Spirit will produce good works of love, worship, and obedience, rather than living under the pressure of producing them all on your own, by your own power. Now, of course, it won't always be easy to remember these things. At times, we are tempted to wander and doubt. But we have the promises of God's word. We have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We have fellow believers around us to remind us of all these truths along the way. You know, we might not be a great nation the way Abraham was. But God has promised that we are a holy nation and a royal priesthood through Christ. And we may never have all the descendants that Abraham had, at least in worldly terms. But we are told that we have countless brothers and sisters in Christ. And we may never have land on this earth the way Abraham was promised he would. But we have a greater land to look forward to in God's presence and eternity. So go out and remember that you are a friend of God, like Abraham was. Live with the faith that Abraham had, remembering at all times what Christ has done for you. Let's pray. Father, again, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time we have together. Thank you that you are graciously justifying the ungodly, even to this day. Father, we thank you for your kindness and your mercy. We thank you that you have called us and equipped us and enabled us to go out and live by faith because you have declared us to be righteous. Father, I pray that we would remember these truths, 
that when we're tempted to trust in our good works, when we're tempted to doubt that we could possibly be in good standing with you, that we would remember your son, Jesus Christ. That we would remember that the righteous live by faith, not by works. And that we would remember that Christ's righteousness has been credited to our account. Again, if you look at us, we might not be anything to write home about. We still struggle with sin. We still give in to temptation. We still fall short in numerous ways, both public and private. But Father, we trust that your spirit is living within us. We trust that your spirit is producing those good works that we can't produce on our own. And Father, we trust that we can live by faith and bring glory to you. Father, again, we love you. We worship you. We thank you for what we talked about last week, that we are justified by your grace, that we have been redeemed by the broken body and shed blood of Christ. Help us remember that in the week ahead with whatever it is that we might face. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.